Our sermon this morning is based on Matthew chapter 8. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. This is the gospel of our Lord. There's a song about this. It's by a musician named Bob Bennett. It's called Man of the Tombs. It really reflects more a reading of this parallel account in Mark. It has a few more details and focuses on just one of those two demon-possessed men, the one who spoke. Now, I'm not going to sing the song to you, but I'm going to read a couple of lines. Man of the tombs, he lives in a place where no one goes and he tears at himself and lives with a pain that no one knows. He counts himself dead among the living. He knows no mercy and no forgiving. Deep in the night, he's driven to cry out loud, Underneath this thing that I've become, a fading memory of flesh and blood. I curse the womb. I bless the grave. I've lost my heart. I cannot be saved. Like those who fear me, I'm afraid. Like those I've hurt, I can feel pain. Naked now before my sin and these stones that cut against my skin. Some try to touch me, but no one can. For man of the tombs, I am. One of the reasons I wanted to share that with you is because it helps me to reframe this account. It's not just about Jesus' power and authority. It is about that. It absolutely is about that. Jesus shows in this that he is above every power, every authority, physical and spiritual, but it's just as important as that we see what this power is for. It's not just for beating up on the bad guys. This is about reclaiming what has been lost. It's about rescuing that which needs to be rescued. We need to understand this as a demonstration of Jesus' heart or we really haven't understood Jesus at all. So just how bad was it for these two men? Sometimes in movies and TVs, when, when someone is freed from the clutches of some evil power, it seems like they just sort of snap out of a trance and they were kind of unaware of what was going on and, and maybe it was just kind of like a bad dream. Now, if, if such a thing were even possible, it really seems like a mercy that those demons would have been unlikely to grant. They were there specifically to torment and to torture, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Now, if we read all of the accounts from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get a few extra details. These men weren't being tormented because they were each inhabited by a demon. They were tormented because they were inhabited by what was likely thousands of demons. In Mark, we learn that these demons gave themselves a name. My name is Legion, for we are many. The men would shout and cry all day 
and all night. And so they were likely sleep-deprived. And they were constantly exposed to the elements because they didn't wear any clothes. And they lived outside in these caves that were carved out of the rock in these hills that had been used for tombs. Now, even if they hadn't been dangerously violent and inhumanly strong, you know, every time they tried to come and chain these guys up, they would just break right out of them. So even if that hadn't been the case, they already would have been cut off from friends and family just on the basis of not having a basic standard of decency. Now, Mark shares this additional detail that as they cried out, they would pick up sharp stones and cut themselves. And I don't know for sure whether that is an example of the demons tormenting them or if these were just men so tormented they didn't have a different way to express it or relieve it. And what these men didn't know and what they couldn't have known is that Jesus was on his way to rescue them. And I mentioned this, this account is found in Mark and Luke in addition to what we read in Matthew. And yeah, it's always helpful to collect all the details from all the accounts to get a full sense of what's going on. But it's also helpful to notice the details that are the same. The things that each gospel writer thought it necessary to include. And all of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, preserve the connection of what happened right before. Now, it's not unusual in the Gospels for the Gospel writers to go out of chronological order, to present Jesus' miracles and his, his teachings thematically rather than the order in which they happened. But they all felt it was important to put these ones in order, that right before Jesus came to the region of the Gadarenes to save these two men from thousands of demons by casting them into pigs, Jesus rescued his disciples from a storm as they crossed over the Sea of Galilee. And remember what had happened. Jesus had spent the entire day prior teaching and performing miracles and, and healing people. And at the end of the day, when evening came, he was exhausted. And to escape the crowds, they got into a boat and they headed off across the sea. And Jesus fell asleep. And he stayed asleep, even when the weather turned nasty. And it got so bad that these disciples, these experienced fishermen and, and sailors, all were convinced that they were about to die. And so they shook Jesus awake and said, Lord, save us. And Jesus rebuked them for their weak faith. And then he rebuked the storm and it was immediately calm. And suddenly the disciples were more afraid of Jesus than they had been of the storm. And they asked each other, what kind of a man is this? And yet we can point out, and we often do, that the disciples should have known the answer to that already. They should have known. Jesus had showed them repeatedly who he was. And yet we also recognize that at this moment, after a demonstration of power of that magnitude, that question becomes a lot more relevant and a lot more important. And so Jesus finished their trip across the Sea of Galilee, and he showed them again his power and authority, but also his heart. He went to rescue the two most miserable, unpleasant, seemingly beyond reach men you could possibly imagine. Now, there are a lot of questions that come up when we study this. Why would so many demons focus their attention on just two men? And why do they act the way they do? Why do they keep raging against God when they know that they can't possibly win? Why do they want to get sent into pigs? Why do those pigs immediately go and drown themselves in the sea? Now, we're going to talk about some of those things specifically. And many of you will have opportunity to talk about them again in, in your growth groups this week. But let me just give you the one answer that sort of covers all of them. Evil is always irrational. 
It's always destructive. This is what demons are. This is what they do. They don't need a reason aside from just doing everything in their power to destroy something that God has made and to steal something away that God loves. And so that brings us to our theme for today, the lucidity of demons. Lucidity refers to something that's clearly expressed and easily understood. Now, why would we apply that kind of a word to demons that are irrational, unreasonable, destructive, and deceptive? It's because even they are bound by certain realities that they can't do anything about. And when they find themselves in the presence of their Creator, the one who cannot be overpowered, and the one who cannot be deceived, they're terrified. They snap to attention. They beg for mercy, and they have no choice but to obey His every last command. Now, of the three gospel accounts where we can read this, we read from Matthew, and that's the briefest of the three, that the demons only speak three sentences. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at each one individually and see what they show us about the character of demons, the nature of evil, and also what they show us about Jesus. So here's the first one. What do you want with us, Son of God? Now, of course, you remember, Jesus had just showed His power by calming the storm. He showed it to His disciples, but the demons didn't need that. They didn't need a demonstration of His power. They already knew who Jesus was. They had been in His presence before. By calling Him Son of God, they are confessing as much. This is a recognition of His divinity, His absolute authority over them. But what they said here also shows us something else. This phrase, what do you want with us? If we were to translate that literally, it would be, what is there to you and to us? It's an idiom that's less a question and more a declaration. We don't have anything in common. We have no shared business. We have no shared interests. And there's no reason for you to be here. And this shows us just how little these demons know and how far they have fallen. Even before they rebelled against God, they were already created beings. They were less than God, less intelligent, and less powerful. But when they embraced sin, they were corrupted by it as surely as everything else in creation. And Paul wrote about this in Ephesians, the result of turning your back on God. And he was talking about, he was talking about human unbelievers, but this is exactly as true of demons. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So let's work backwards on this. They hardened their hearts against God, which caused them to be ignorant of who He is, which cut them off from the source of life Himself. Now, I don't want to spoil you this morning. But I know last week, Pastor Hein gave you a Quenstead quote. Now you get two weeks in a row. I'm going to talk to him, see if we can make this a weekly thing. But here's what Andreas Quenstead said about the fallen nature of demons. He said, The evil angels, through their fall, did not lose their natural knowledge or that which they had from the light of nature, for to a certain extent they know God and other natural things. But that knowledge of supernatural things is joined with an extreme hatred and raging against God with malice, envy, and fury against the good angels and pious and blessed people, with ignorance, doubt, error, and forgetfulness. They lost completely, however, the knowledge which arises from the light of grace. Now, there's another 
uh, theologian Johann Bayer who points out the clearest evidence of this, of Satan's weakened, limited intellect. He said, it's that Satan promoted the death of Christ with such eagerness, not realizing that thereby his own very great adversity was brought about. So in other words, these demons didn't know the plan. They didn't know that Jesus didn't just come to conquer but to redeem. They knew His power, but they didn't know God as He is because they had spent most of their existence choosing not to. What they do know is that they can't win. And the next thing they said is a question that shows us the end result of knowing God's power but not knowing His heart. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? So they are in some sense very aware of their limitations. They know that they can't win against Jesus. They know that there's a time appointed for their torture. Now, what do you think that is? What do you think it is, torture for a demon? And maybe you've heard a definition of hell as that time when God fully and finally withdraws every blessing that's associated with His loving presence. But aren't demons already in that position? They are totally cut off from God. They are hardened. Here they are in the presence of Jesus, ultimate good, and they hate Him. They absolutely hate Him, and they're quaking in their boots. Notice that they'll call Him Son of God, but they won't call Him by His name, Jesus. Why is that? Jesus means Savior, and He's not their Savior. So how about this for an aspect of their torture? When they can no longer torture. This is their misery, when they can no longer spread misery, when they can no longer destroy, and they know that that time is coming. This is from Revelation The devil is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Do you have a bucket list? Something that you want to accomplish before your life is over? Some people want to see the world, go skydiving, have kids or grandkids. What do you think is on Satan's bucket list? This is from the parable of the sower and the seed. Those along the path are the ones who hear And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Satan wants to prevent you from hearing God's word. This is from another parable. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. The enemy who sows them is the devil. Satan wants to infiltrate the church with unbelievers. He wants to plant seeds of doubt. And this is from our first reading today. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. He wants you to experience so much difficulty as a result of your faith that you'll just give it up. Now, we could keep going with this, but Martin Luther sums it up pretty well in the large catechism. He says, what is the devil? Nothing else than what the scriptures call him, a liar and a murderer. A liar to lead the heart astray from the Word of God and to blind it that you cannot feel your distress or come to Christ. A murderer who cannot bear to see you live one single hour. So demons have a to-do list. They have things they want to accomplish. They have misery they want to spread. And so maybe it makes sense that they would do anything in their power except any circumstance if it gave them an opportunity to spend a little more time doing that. This is their third statement. If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Now, let's just take a moment here to marvel at the audacity, the hypocrisy, 
and the pride of these demons appealing to a Savior's merciful heart, asking Him for mercy when they themselves have shown none. The most common question that comes from this is why? Why do the demons want to go into a herd of pigs? And you know, none of the gospel writers address it directly. But we do get an extra detail from the Luke account. They begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. So, obviously, pigs are preferable to hell. But I think there's more to it than that. And it's actually the lack of an explanation that's telling. Because to Jewish people, reading the Gospel of Matthew, I don't think they would have needed an explanation. It wouldn't have come as a surprise to them that unclean spirits would have wanted to go in unclean animals like pigs. Ever since the time of Moses, something like 1,400 years before this, unclean was a designation of something that God's people were to have nothing to do with. And when it came to pigs, they were not to eat. They were not even to touch the flesh of a pig because that would make you unclean. And when a person is unclean, they wouldn't be able to participate in any aspect of community life, including worship. That means that being unclean was declaring someone unfit for any sort of association with God or with people. In every way, demons are unclean. They're not fit for relationships with God or with people, but they're not content just to be unclean. What they did to these men made them unclean, forcing them to live in tombs among corpses, put them firmly in the category of unclean. So in addition to the considerable physical torture they had to endure, it was being made to be repulsive and unapproachable and humiliated and isolated and lonely. This is what demons are. This is what they do. This is what they want to do to you. So let's sum it up. This is what we can say about demons from Matthew 8. Their knowledge is limited. Their time is limited. Their power is limited. That being said, let's not imagine that they pose no danger. The inhuman strength that they lent to these two men bursting through chains and shackles shows us they have power that we don't have. They can oppress. They can possess. They can entice. They can accuse. They're driven by hatred and malice. They're unfit for relationships with people or God, and they would love to spread that filth to us to get us to turn away from God, to be cut off from the body of Christ, and to join them in their eternal punishment. So what can we say about Jesus? If you've got a red-letter edition of the Bible, if you open it up to this section of Matthew chapter 8, you know what it looks like? When you look in a Bible where, where every word of Jesus is printed in red ink, it looks kind of like this. In the entire account, only one single word spoken by Jesus go. This has everything that we need to know about Jesus' power and everything that we need to know about his authority, everything we need to know about his attitude towards evil and things unclean and anything that would threaten that which he loves. What kind of a man is this? Let's answer the disciples' question. This is a man whose words calmed the storm, who healed the sick, who cast out demons, who brought people to life, even called the whole universe into existence. This isn't hard for him. But what's even more astounding than this demonstration of Jesus' power, even more incredible than when he used a single word 
to rescue these two men from thousands of demons is the time that Jesus hung on a cross and wouldn't use a single word to rescue himself. That the one who could destroy all evil with a breath refused to do it because that would have destroyed us. And so the Almighty God made himself subject to torture, to misery, to the penalty for our sin, even making himself subject to death so that Satan could have no claim on us. Why is it you're here today instead of in a graveyard, in caves, among corpses, naked, crying, cutting yourself with stones? It's because you are under the protection of Jesus Christ. Michael Heiser is a guy who's studied this kind of thing a lot. He's written a number of books on the supernatural realm, and he sums up just how secure our position is in Christ. Now, there are a lot of references here, and I'll invite you, if you want, to, to check out the stream from last night. You look at these up later on your own. Let me read what he has to say about this. A member of the body of Christ cannot be owned by Satan or demons. The body of Christ, the church, has been obtained with his own blood. The Spirit and Christ dwell within those who believe. Those who are in Christ have a new identity as members of the family of God. Believers have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We are God's inheritance. The idea that believers described in these ways can be subsequently owned by lesser demonic powers is incoherent. Satan knows this. He knows that he can't take you away from God because God is too powerful and he loves you too much to let it happen. As long as the truth of God is in your heart, you belong to him. And so what Satan will try to do is replace that truth with a lie. Let me read to you again the very last verse of our text. And I want you to consider what lie would lead a person to this. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Satan can't steal you away. What he can do is take advantage of our weakness, our shame, our fear to the extent that we allow him to. And if he can, he will try to convince you that Jesus doesn't love you, that Jesus can't save you, that Jesus won't forgive you, that having him close by and giving your whole self to him is just isn't worth it. Now, just like those two men who were possessed, the people of the town seemed so lost and so empty that they couldn't possibly be saved. You know what Jesus did when they begged him to leave? He left. One more detail, though, from the Gospel of Mark. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Now, if you read on a few chapters, you'll see that the next time Jesus was in the area, the crowds again came out to meet him, and this time they welcomed him. And they begged him to heal their sick, and they begged him to drive out demons. They had begged him before to leave, but he didn't leave. The rescue was still on the way. And so you know his power, and you know his heart. Maybe now you're wondering, well, I'm oppressed, I'm in pain, I'm struggling, where's my rescue? 
our enemies are strong, and it seems like their strength doesn't run out quite as fast as ours. I know I think of the disciples struggling through that storm on the Sea of Galilee. What kind of perspective, what kind of faith would they have needed to continue their work of bailing out the boat and securing the cargo without feeling the need to wake Jesus up in a panic? They would have needed to know that Jesus was with them all the time. And that it's absolutely impossible that even one single one of his promises about their future could fail. These two demon-possessed men, what would they have needed to know during their most miserable days and their most miserable nights to endure their suffering without despair? They would have needed to know that there is one who is infinitely more powerful than their tormentors and that he was on the way to save them. What about those townspeople? What would they have needed to know in order to lose a fortune, a literal fortune on pigs and still consider it a small price to pay to have Jesus in their lives? They would have needed to know how much Jesus was willing to pay for them. And it was a lot more than just taking that trip across the sea and fighting through a storm to deal with the evil that threatened them. What about you? What do you need to know? Well, what the disciples should have known, what the demon-possessed men didn't know, what the townspeople refused to know, you do know. We're not always going to be able to discern where the troubles in our lives are coming from, but we do know that Jesus made a special trip from heaven to earth through a life of temptation all the way to the cross to deal with the evil that threatened us, evil on the outside, evil on the inside. And after the price he paid, he is not about to leave us alone now. He will deliver us from all of our troubles in his time, in the perfect time, just like he did for his disciples, just like he did for the townspeople, just like he did for those two demon-possessed men. In closing, I just want to share a few more lines from that song, Man of the Tombs. Down at the shoreline, Two sets of footprints meet. One voice is screaming, other voice begins to speak. In only a moment and only a word, the evil departs like a thundering herd. Man of the tombs, he hears this cry out loud. Underneath this thing that you've become, I see a man of flesh and blood. I give you life beyond the grave. I heal your heart. I come to save. No need to fear, be not afraid. This man of sorrows knows your pain. I come to take away your sin and bear its marks upon my skin. When no one can touch you, still I can. For Son of God, I am. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you've shown us your power, your authority, and your heart. Make us confident in your rescue that we can weather any storm, face any trouble, and endure any loss because we know we are held tightly in your grip. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.